Welcome, everyone, to the Punisher podcast by Fantastic Geek, your official, unofficial voice of the Marvel Cinematic Community. My name is Matt, and joining me, as always, is Pete. Hello, Pete. God, I don't know if I'm horrified or excited. Maybe a little bit of both. Guess that makes me just half a terrible person. The Punisher podcast by Fantastic Geek for episode 109, Front Toward Enemy, is brought to you by Punisher P-Jars, ideal for when you have to take it out on a stakeout. Wow. Well, Pete, luckily we don't need those despite the bevy of things we've been podcasting lately. Great to be podcasting Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. now, and it's uh, heading into its uh, fourth episode in its third week this week. Uh, we also will continue with Runaways, which will be its, uh, is that fifth or sixth episode this week? Six coming up. We're more than halfway done with that first season over there. About to talk this Punisher episode where you really feel like we turned a corner and we're heading into the last four with a with a cohesive sense of momentum. Uh, and then, Pete, also this week, uh, there's a uh, an independent movie about uh, some people <laughs> fighting the system or something. And, uh, and maybe they're going to end their monastic uh, existence and uh, throw away all their religiosity. Uh, what's that movie called? That would be uh, Space Conflict Episode Ocho. <laughs> Certainly looking forward to podcasting that. Pete, should we get into this episode, though? Let's do it. Give us the recap, Matt. The episode opens with Madani still processing failure and death and talking things over with her mother. Madani ponders whether she should speak at Stein's funeral, and the camera reveals that Frank and Micro are watching this high-value target from another rooftop. Their pondering on contacting her is interrupted by several explosions at ground level. After the title card, it's revealed that the bomber has hit the ATF, NYPD, and federal courthouse. The bomber is, of course, Lewis, who mails his anti-government manifesto to Karen Page, who he assumes has a sympathetic ear. Karen is enraged and prepared to go on the offensive via an article, editorial, or some other media tool. Pressure remains on Madani, who receives Rafi. What exactly was this false mission she led, which has resulted in death? Later, she gets a pep talk of sorts from Billy, and she is prepared to lose her job by speaking the truth at Stein's funeral. The story moves back to Karen Page, a talk radio guest with Senator Ori. While the senator talks of strict gun control, Karen has a broader view of using a weapon for protection something we, the audience, saw very clearly in the first season of Daredevil. The radio show receives a caller. It's Lewis, unnamed to them, but recognized by Frank, who is listening. The Latin sic semper tyrannis. He's heard that before. At Curtis's group. Curtis recognized the voice, too, and is calling Lewis while checking in on O'Connor. He finds the body, and more bombs, and Lewis, too. A brutal fight ensues, one which Curtis loses as he is savagely beaten. Micro has found out information on Lewis, and Frank is also trying to find him. He ends up at O'Connor's as well, finding Curtis alive but hurt and surrounded by those bombs. Lewis calls, and Frank talks the young man into telling him what wire to cut to prevent an explosion. But Lewis has also called the police, and Frank runs hitting several police officers as he steals a police car to escape. Madani, on the way to Stein's funeral, stops for a drink. Micro finds her there and makes his initial contact with her to share information, but their conversation is interrupted by news reports. 
there's footage from that stolen police car. Frank Castle is alive. Pete, where should we start in our discussion of villains in this episode? Well, I think you really begin and uh, end with uh, Lewis Wilson here, this dastardly turn. I mean, we had speculated where he was in the previous episode not appearing. The last haven't seen him uh, putting together a uh, pressure cooker bomb. We thought maybe he was going to take O'Connor out and, and maybe – uh, in some way implicate O'Connor. I think he he went full dark on this one, Matt. This was uh, not where I saw the narrative going. I certainly can't speak for you, but uh, really kind of cements himself as a colossal jerk. For the character, there really is no way back. I mean, potentially before those bombs went off, it could have been a case of someone intercedes before the you know before the first one is set or before the before one explodes or anyone is hurt um actor daniel weber who you would not know was born in gosford uh australia uh because wow yeah boy does he na- just nail the, the the american accent here um on the younger side as actors go 29 you feel the, the the pathos of Lewis here. You really can see how he was somebody who was on the edge, somebody who was hurting, somebody who was sympathetic prior to this episode and concurrent with, obviously, the three explosions in which lives were lost and many people were hurt. I mean, he goes off the deep end, but not in a deep dive. Like, there's there's been this progression, but this is also a step down and how he as an actor and the writing and the production, all of that, managed that where now he's not kind of crazy serial killer, but it's just you knew we were headed here and it hurts even more. That's the wondrous thing, as dark as it is. Yeah, I mean, the idea that, okay, he lets Frank go with Curtis, tells him which wire to try. Um, is is there some good in that action? There is. I don't see a redemptive way out for him here. Um, it's funny that uh, not funny, haha, but funny hmm that Frank gets pulled away from his father's home to go check in on Curtis when uh, Micro gets that hit on the address. Because I'm almost certain we were going to find that the father is is dead inside. Somebody who's who's treated him with such love and understanding maybe could be a little bit tougher on him in terms of, you know, forcing him to get some help. Um, but you know, we, we understand how, uh, parents can be with children, particularly, you know, that this type of problem that, you know, of, of all the things we watch on our comic book TV shows, this idea of neglected, vets and post-traumatic stress exists and it's horrible and i can't imagine i'm lucky enough knock on wood to to not know someone in my life who's dealt with this um and i my heart goes out to you if that's the case the way this is presented on here it's it's not two-dimensional but we're definitely able to level that judgment that you know he is bad bordering on irredeemable at this point the tragedy of it is that we saw him act as this fully formed person that it's not 
the way oftentimes in our real world these bombings occur where of course you have no idea that it's going to happen and you know if you did someone would act the fact that we've seen his descent and the fact that we've sympathized with him the fact that we've seen his father you know put his his hand on his son tell him mm-hmm. how he loves him really remind us that lewis is this you know <laughs> that lewis was a child that lewis was a, an eager-eyed marine i know frank identifies in him not someone who uh, went to fight for the flag, but now uses the flag to wipe the the the, the crap off his feet, and 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 as a as a cloak to hide this desire simply to fight and to fight things, um, and that that may well be the case. But I give the show so much credit for just making us look at this guy. Yeah, and indeed, there have been there have been times with the camera, including when he beats Curtis, where they could cut away to the implied. And the camera forces us to watch this awful situation. And I think they're making this conscientious decision not to go for TVMA, not to not to do anything other than make us look at the awfulness that is inside this person and that's coming out. The second time I watched it, Matt, I happened to not because of the violence. I was just distracted. I looked away as the fight was occurring and the use of sound in that scene, particularly with the leg used on Curtis there. I mean, you know, he's going to go for it. It's telecast several times throughout the scene, him reaching for it. So it's just a question of when does he get the upper hand um, and do that. But he's relentless with that on him and, you know, with everything that he's done, it, it's very, very hard to see him turning back. Particularly in an episode in a show that really is looking at the veteran experience, to have Curtis of all people, you know, who is not dogmatic like Frank Castle, uh, who obviously uh, Lewis is is aspiring to be like in some sort of twisted or not twisted way i think that's for for separate discussion but curtis who just has a job as a salesman who is volunteering his time on the side to help veterans like him you know he he is this complete neutral if not positive person he he's neutral in terms of his kind of impact on the action and he's seems to be a positive introspective thoughtful guy for him to be the one that could have pulled lewis back and, and maybe the script wasn't headed there, but I think in our hearts that was possible. And then Lewis not only says no, but then beats him so badly. It's just, it's, it's, it's terrible. It really is. And what an episode for Jason R. Moore here. Um, the, the eye and the, the rest of the makeup after the beating and being strapped into the, uh, the explosive with the Claymore mines and just to, you know, you, you say that he's not dogmatic, Matt, but I would have to disagree given, you know, he talks about waking up from nightmares too. He just goes at it a different way, a rather elegant way, I might add, that, you know, other than the, the physical that we're told about and we see the leg come off. And again, you know, this is an actor who has both legs, so they're they're playing around with, you know, the the fictional disability. Um he does go about his job, his life in a, in a dogmatic way, very much the opposite of uh, a Lewis. I mean, Lewis is where he is 
because he's made choices and Curtis is where he is because he's made choices. But you look at how he regrets and then the heartbreaking nature to hear that, you know, Frank took his eye off the ball. He saw this woman, the woman blew herself up and and he could not pull the trigger because he saw his wife in that, you know, again, my, my hat is completely off to this writing staff. I've been, I, I don't want to say blown away because that's just horrible to use here, but I've just been so impressed with what they've done with this show. I really have been. I know sometimes for the various things we podcast, we spend a little time talking about who directed the episode, who who wrote the episode, uh, and, and we're not here. But it, ca- it has caught my eye before that a number of these episodes, uh, unusual for a uh, for for a writing staff, a number of these episodes are written by women. Um, I don't want to quite say, oh, I'm surprised because this is a boy show with boy characters doing boy things. I'm, I'm certainly not suggesting that far, but I think it's uh, difficult for women to write about you know, soldiers. I mean, yes, we have women fighting on the the front lines now, but we don't have women in Hollywood per se that have fought on the front lines who are able to take that experience and put it into fiction. So, you know, that says so much about what takes place in this episode, how believable, how relatable it is. Three of the nine episodes we've watched so far have a writing credit to uh, to female writers. Uh, give them credit here. This episode written by Angela Lamana. The previous episode, Felicia D. Henderson. And then episode uh, six, The Judas Goat, was written by Christine Boylan. So uh, there you, you go. Arguably the, first... the three greatest episodes we've talked about oh. <laughs> thus far. Yeah. Then when you factor in that uh, showrunner Steve Lightfoot wrote the first three episodes, which you know is is oftentimes the case with a showrunner, uh, and, and that's not to say that he wrote them. With, you know, I'm not suggesting that he had zero input from the writing staff, um, but certainly at you know through uh, through the crediting process gets gets the sole credit there. My point being that after that third episode of the four, five, six, seven, eight, of the five that we've watched since then. Uh, or which is say the five once the showrunner has has let the little baby show start to run on its own, you know th- three of those five have been have been written by women. So uh, and, and j- just looking ahead without any details here, we have another script by Felicia D Henderson uh, awesome. in the remaining four. So hey, gee whiz, Pete, maybe adding the female voice to the writing room. We're adding three female voices coincidentally this is you know uh, certainly on the upper end of of the marvel tv offerings um that's not to say the other shows don't have a female voice obviously uh, women on staff for jessica jones um women making up some of the writing staff for agents of shield and so on gee whiz you mix it up here you add different kinds of people with different kinds of perspectives some gender some race some life um and you, the result is this fantastic show. Absolutely. Moving it along in terms of our villains, Matt, though he's he's no Lewis. I don't get a great vibe out of Senator Ori, particularly his no gun stance and then brings in Anvil, which we know, of course, to be as dirty as the day is long. Um, this is really going to work out, I'm sure, too. <laughs> I I agree that there's something that doesn't seem authentic, and here we are, 
you know, uh, continuing to discuss the authenticity of elected officials relative to their positions, relative to the truth. Uh, that said, I find it a little difficult in this episode to pin a lot of suspicion of villainy on him. Uh, I, I agree there is something principally uh, at ends to say that I am you know, anti-gun and anti-gun violence. Now I'm going to hire a security bunch that, that, that carries guns. Um, I think it's possible for you to have both thoughts simultaneously, probably less so if you are looking to uh, go on the Ricky Lantry show and, uh, <laughs> and, and push an anti and, and, and an extreme anti-gun agenda as Senator Ori is at the end of the day, Pete, I, here's my read on him. He's well-meaning. Uh, he's, doing what he can like okay getting this benefit this fundraising benefit together at the hotel i guess that's what you do when you're in that sector of life others of us would be the ones giving the money or volunteering or that kind of thing um yeah bottom line is though we know that he's let the wolves into the hen house and and there's only going to be trouble moving forward yeah i think that uh you know his interaction with billy alone and the bad news we know him to be is not going to work out. And, you know, how is he portrayed when he's not on the Ricky Lantry show? He's he's chasing the funds, Matt. It's all about the gala. Oh, I got to bring somebody in to protect myself. Not the idea of, you know, a, a pacifist like a Martin Luther King who would get out there in front of an issue and – you know, are people going to come at you? They're going to come at you. Not that, you know, security is a bad thing, but we know Anvil does not check out. And what did he say? He said that he got uh, the tip off on Anvil from a friend in a high place. Read that, of course, to be one Williams, William Rollins of the Virginia Rollins. Well, when you put it like that, that's difficult. Uh, it's certainly difficult to argue with. In my book, he's he's uh, on the the villain watch list. Not quite yet a villain himself. <laughs> How about Billy here, Matt? You know, goes to see Madani, uh, tells her, chastises her that that sex isn't going to solve her problems. I mean, first off, whatever, buddy. And then two. <laughs> He's, you know, closing this deal with Senator Ori and, and saying that, you know, if he can square this terrorist that we know is Lewis up, he's, he's going to take the shot regardless of who he's protecting. Um, you know, Ben, Ben Barnes just has such a screen presence and I'm really looking forward to what we'll continue to get him out, get out of him on this show it's been floated. He's back on Westworld. I'm not quite sure how that might be accomplished, but we'll, we'll see. Um, what a, what a great year and change it's been for this guy playing really terrible people. <laughs> well, I think it'll, well, Pete, I won't even begin to respond how I think he'll be back on Westworld because if you haven't seen the first season, what I was about to say would rock your world well before you're supposed to figure it out on Westworld, but I, I could foresee how there's more story for his character. Let me, let me put it like that. Um, I know as a side note, my wife would continue, uh, would like to continue to see him as we last saw him in Westworld, but I digress. 
um, I think, you know, I, I joked about the senator being on the, the villain watch list. Uh, Billy Russo is on the villain forever list. The fact that he is a smooth operator in this episode, the fact that he is confronting the world that we live in, both the real one and the MCU world where sometimes you need to respond to violence with violence. Sometimes you need the smoking gun. Sometimes you need the, the, the big stick proverbially. Um, all of that makes sense in terms of the slick public face that he has. But now that we know that he is rotten to the core, it's all the worse. It's all the more saccharine, this, this charming, helpful, you know, even, even delivering to Madani, the, the, I'll say tough love. I don't know that love is exactly the best word, but that that frank advice, no, now is not the time to to be physically intimate. You need something else emotionally, and this is this is in opposition of that. It's all sensible. He's all sensible. He's all realistic in this episode. He's just still rotten. Yeah, I mean, I can certainly see what you're saying there, but you know, with the way that he acts on screen, the manipulative nature, (laughs) it's, it's tough, tough to watch. It's compelling, but it is tough to watch at times. Let's talk some theories, Matt. Uh, first up for me, Rafi Hernandez pops up here again. He comes to the home of, uh, the Madani family, um, and that that beautiful uh, corner room office wood paneled uh, thing there that has to be a an actual location and, and not a uh, not a set. Um, I can't put him on my villain list, but his presence, you know, it it, it piques my interest in a way that. I wonder what he's doing here to serve the story other than, Hey, you got to get back. You're my special agent in charge and and people are hurt and you didn't file a tactical plan. You followed, filed a false tactical plan, everything like that. Is he dirty? Is he working with Rollins? Well, that's the question, isn't it? And I think Rafi Hernandez as a real person, he can be there genuinely as someone to check on her mental, emotional, physical status, friend to friend. He can also be there in a uh, quasi-professional capacity to say, help me help you. We need to get her, you know, we need to, to handle this back in the workplace. Um, but I don't know that Rafi Hernandez, the real person, makes the cut of this episode if we weren't headed somewhere with it. And I think our two choices are, as you say, Pete, that he's part of the system, he's part of the problem, he's there on behalf of Rollins or there on behalf of a corrupt, uh, you know, corrupt government, corrupt system, or Rafi Hernandez is the ticking time bomb to her, uh, her exiting Homeland Security. You know, if we have, if we have a conclusion where she's not, being thrown in jail by the corrupt CIA DHS, uh, if she leaves on her own accord, it'll be because, you know, she's going to be quote unquote court martialed at his hands once the the fair investigation comes through to reveal that that she acted uh, inappropriately or, or filed these things incorrectly uh, with malice, with secret, whatever it might be. So, in my mind, it's one of those two things. How about Frank? Uh, using his marksmanship skills, Matt, to hit a police officer in the head with a rock 
And then once he takes the car from a pair of police officers, I went back and watched this episode twice. I went back and watched that part a a third time. Pretty sure he ran over an appendage of one of those cops. Well, let me start with that. That the, the notion that he had run over somebody crossed my mind. There is a there's a, a police hat that goes flying with kind of the force of the car backing up. Uh, certainly, I have no doubt all these stunt people were just fine. Um, and and um, so I'm not concerned on a, on a realistic level. But there is a brutality to him in that chase where it's more than the the tactical uh, appropriateness of how to how to get out of your how to extract yourself from a situation like this he's kind of full you know fight or flight mode here and i think that, that ties nicely into the frank that we saw in this episode where he really is getting enraged a number of times um one being when he gives that fantastic speech uh about uh, about how bombing is for cowards and uh and all that sentiment agree with but we see the rage building in him here we really see this unhinged punisher returning and i don't know pete luckily i've never been on the run from a from from the police and had to throw throw fisticuffs and all that but i thought he was showing a level of brutality that was perhaps unnecessary with micro making the executive decision with Frank obviously occupied and there on the run at the end of the episode, although he doesn't know that yet in the bar. I know, Matt, when I like to confront a secret source, let's say for uh, Star Wars The Last Jedi secrets, um, I don't talk about it in a bar while brandishing a handgun. I agree that the inclusion of the handgun to me was realistic. Or how, how do I put this? It was flair that pushed the reality of what was going on. I feel that it would be difficult to brandish a handgun in a bar and not get noticed or not have, frankly, not get noticed, period. Um, I think also it, it shows a degree of, uh, a degree of, of, I don't know, temperament or perhaps lack thereof that we, that we have not seen out of micro before. Um, so is that slightly out of character? Maybe. I also think for him to say, surprise, surprise, the random guy hitting on you at the bar is actually the guy who has all the information that you want, who you've already been in touch with. And I am micro. That's a better reveal. I don't know story wise why the gun was needed other than this was an episode that also explored gun issues. Pete, here's a quick one for you. What what fallout is there for Karen professionally and perhaps even personally since she is so closely linked with the Punisher and now it's clear that the Punisher, Frank Castle, is not dead? If, and it's a big if, Matt, you know, Ellison asked her, did you know um, if he can link that to her? Uh, ethically speaking, within journalism, um, she'd be looking at a suspension. It wouldn't be a terminable offense. She could be, she could fall under, you know, the, the shield law that she's protecting a source, but that he's a fugitive from law. It, it could get dicey protecting her. and the, the paper could look to cut bait. Um, if anything, it would be an in name type of act and not with something that really carried teeth. 
with that, Pete, let's uh, let's see what other people are thinking about the Punisher. Matt, we received a message from Robert T. Frost on the Fantastic Geek Facebook page. Uh, it's from episode 106. And he writes in, Pete, I must agree that this is the best episode so far. I fully admit that the end of the episode caught me by surprise. That said, I did start having some misgivings about Billy, Ru- Billy Russo earlier in the episode, specifically when he met Madani on the dock in that luxury sports car with, su- with the suicide doors. It was the car that started my misgivings. I didn't recognize it and I had to look it up. It was a 2016 17 Rolls-Royce Wraith, a $380,000 car. Yes, Russo is the owner of a company, but there uh, was a little something too ostentatious about it. Zach punched the family picture, breaking the glass over the hidden camera and microphone. I wonder if that action will have any fallout. After watching Curtis and Russo together and the suspicion on Russo's face, I think I have a I have to place Curtis on a death watch. I, that works well, given this episode. I really like the Curtis Hoyle character, and I will be very sad if he is killed off. Yours truly, Bob. It goes to show how to, to tell a story on TV or in the movies, you know, it, it takes the whole team and yes the car had kind of registered as i'm sorry pete what was the company rolls royce mm-hmm. 380k I, man <laughs> well and that's kind of my point i think i had registered it as a rolls royce just when it pulled up or there was the flying lady thing on the front of the thing right. um certainly saw the interesting door but beyond that saying "Ooh, nice car really really nice car i think it's a rolls royce it didn't register but the fact that somebody has gone to the trouble to rent that car and somebody has spent the time you know in in terms of the production has spent the time to to think about what would billy go for and he's not going to go for anything as flashy as a lamborghini or you know a a cherry red ferrari or that kind of thing something that's muted but also elegant but also absolutely ostentatious that just fits the character perfectly that you know the, the the wine and dine character that we've seen big ups to bob for you know noticing that car i am not a car guy i I own one i drive one but i'm not somebody who's gonna recognize that and yeah i recognize it as a nice car but 380k even with your own successful business the deals in uh you know uh you know government protection and things like that 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 is that's going to get your reputation and obviously that's what they're going for so great catch bob bob always sharing thoughtful things always part of the team pete there's a whole other team keeping us propped up those are people helping us out on patreon.com slash fantastic geek Yes, our patrons are the best, uh, even more so, Matt, with the rather, uh, shall we say, short-sighted um, policy and pricing strategy that Patreon put into place this last week. Yeah, they gave a minor boost on their end that they also say is going to be on the on the, the creator end, and it's led to a lot of confusion, and we certainly appreciate that uh, – you know that people are people are sticking with us and uh 
and you know I, I tr- we truly mean it week after week it is it is great to be listener supported it is it is great to have this team behind us helping make things uh be possible in the uh the nickel and dime sense could not do it without them and particularly at this time of year all the more thankful and grateful so thank you so much patrons and everybody listening Pete, the thing that leaves people saying thank you the most is being able to interact with you on Twitter, and that's free. How can people do so? You can find me on Twitter at Peter, P-I-E-T-E-R-J-K-E-T-E-L-A-A-R, 9,699 followers, Matt. Can't be wrong. You could be the 9,700th follower. You're, You're a click away. Wow, it's 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 that close. While I am personally on Twitter as Looking Back Lost, you can be in touch with the podcast in a whole host of ways. Visit fantasticgeek.com, email fantasticgeek at gmail.com, reach out to us on Twitter or Instagram where we are Fantastic Geek as well. But wait, Pete, there's more. Facebook.com forward slash fantastic geek with the PH all one word. Definitely gonna be a week to like that and be involved here with your Punisher with your runaways with your star wars the last jedi with your agents of shield it's the place to be indeed you'll get all those things on the pop culture podcast feed if uh, if you subscribe there if you are punisher only pete when will we be back to talk more about frank castle and the punisher we will be back with more punisher on wednesday that would be december 13th um, we will be back with the next episode of Runaways on Tuesday, December 12th. Always an exciting adventure. With that, Pete, I will say adios to all our listeners and give you a final word. New York doesn't forget. <laughs>